Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucking ears, what the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Got some very exciting news that I'd like to share with you. Don't freak out. It's not, it's, I'm not getting married. I'm not, there's no baby. But before I talk to you about it, Walter Hill, the director, is uh, on the show, which was pretty fucking exciting for me because. I, I like Walter Hill. I like a lot of his movies. And back when I was a younger person, I was always excited to see his movies. When I was, uh, yeah, I guess I would be, I would have been in high school. Yeah, I was a little high school film nerd. And I remember, you know, being excited to, uh, to see uh, Walter Hill movies. But like, I'll talk about that in a second. What, what I want to talk about, big news to announce right now. You can officially pre-order waiting for the punch words to live by from the wtf podcast it's the wtf book that brandon and i have been working on for the last two years and i'm holding it right now i'm holding a galley copy of our book and your book soon to be your book and all and a book of all the people that that were part of it this book it's like uh, how can i explain it it's not just a collection of interview transcripts right we took quotes and stories and conversations from about 200 uh guests from this show and created sort of a a running narrative about life you can go to markmarinbook.com or just go to wtfpod.com and click on the book on the top of the page to pre-order this amazing thing. I, I couldn't believe it when I read through it. I, I mean, it's just, it's it's so fluid and it's so exciting to read. And to be honest with you, I don't really remember a lot of the conversations I have here. They were, some of them were a while ago and I really only, I only listen to them in real time. Brendan's the guy that does the, uh, that does the polish and the cutting on the thing. Now, the way it's organized is that each chapter covers like a, a different topic. You got childhood, relationships, sexuality, success, failure, stuff like that. All right. So we put it together that way. And what we were trying to do by weaving all these conversations together is uh, just make it feel like like everyone is part of this big conversation. It, it's sort of like a guide to life, if that's possible. And I, I think some of you uh, feel that way about this podcast, a, a certain number of you. Now, the weird thing about it is like, like I said, I read it, and when we were editing it, obviously, you know, Brendan did a uh, 
is it is how do you say it a lion's share of the work on uh, putting this together but the weird thing is is when you read all these things together the impact is it's like pretty powerful uh, it's funny it's tragic it's joyous it's heartbreaking it's it's really strangely profound and we're very proud of this book i was just astounded because like i said before i have these conversations but I don't know if I process them in the same way that you you do when you read something, you know. And it's very interesting to read pieces of conversations uh, that were spoken as opposed to written. You get you engage with it in a, in a totally different way, and it all works like it all works together. I couldn't I couldn't put it down, and I was the one that had the fucking conversations. Uh, it's a nice big book. It's four hundred pages long. Uh, there's twelve new essays in it by me, John Oliver wrote the forward for us very nice of him and if you're a listener of the show it's really the best possible physical representation of what we do uh and you know that's how we feel about it also talking book stuff on june 3rd i'm going to be at the book con in new york city with brendan mcdonald my collaborator and business partner and producer and and this event will be the first public unveiling of the book and if you're there to see us talk about it, you will get an advanced copy. Go to uh, thebookcon.com for tickets. If you order tickets now, they're still doing an early bird price, and it's still early enough to get the tickets mailed to you. So get on that now if you want to see us at the BookCon and get an advanced copy of Waiting for the Punch. That's thebookcon.com. It is fucking awesome. I like to cover. You know, this whole process was really uh, a pretty amazing thing because you know we've talked to so many people and you know brendan like i said uh who who has an incredible memory <laughs> yeah, and is a a very uh, uh skillful putter together of things man it just uh it's very exciting so so i'm looking forward to you guys getting it now you can go to um, markmarinbook.com or use the book link at wtfpod.com or just go to wherever you order books online. Very exciting. Oh my God. So I was in Portland and I did three shows at the Aladdin. I love the Aladdin. And I'm trying to work out this special and it's coming along good. I tell you, the... uh, the part of the job where you organize and pull things together and uh, you know polish things up, it's ex- it's exciting, but it's a little tedious, and and I have to be careful that it doesn't suck the fun out of it for me. But it is part of the job, and I'm trying to hone up or hone down or hone in on or hone a uh, a set that's been running an hour and a half, an hour forty five minutes, and that leaves room for a lot of improvising. But for Netflix, they kind of want about a seventy minute thing. 75 minutes all in for the special so that's probably about 70 minutes of stand-up so i have to trim like 25 minutes and it's not so much that i'm i'm more attached to bits than others but it's like how's it all going to flow together so now i'm like finally uh, you know less than a week away from the special and i'm like maybe i should uh, tighten this up a bit so portland was very helpful in uh in in letting me do that and the audiences were great that aladdin i've worked there many times and I, i'll always go back there it seats about 600 sold out three shows and the audiences were just fucking amazing uh i had a, a local comic open open for me barbara home she did a great job and i just uh 
I always I I love going to Portland, even though every time I go there, I directly and immediately connect with some sort of pervading old timey darkness that I believe just simmers under the entire city. I don't know what the apparitions are or what the spirits are or what they're kind of mildly aggravated about, but I always feel it there. And it's not a negative thing. I'm not saying anything negative about Portland. It adds to the charm, the weird old timey darkness uh, is constantly sort of engaging with the uh, the uh, the fancy facial hairs and uh, coffee shops and artisanal occupations to create an interesting but uh, uh, kind of heavy vibe, man. This is how I read it. I have a poetic experience every time I go to Portland. Generally, I have some good coffee, some good food, but I walk over bridges and I'm like, man, there's something here, man. There's something going on here. And and it never goes away. But uh, I, I feed on it. I, I think I have a good relationship with the Portland spirits that just lie beneath the city, maybe also in the water there. So... Oh, yeah, I was at the uh, Portland airport today. And I had a beautiful moment. You know, sometimes when I'm a little punchy, I'm a little tired. Things are a little uh, uh, shaky around the edges. You know, because I don't do drugs anymore. So I, I have to exhaust myself in order to relax in that way. But some, it was just, there was just something happening at the Portland airport. I, uh, I went to the main area and there was a guy playing classical guitar. It was amplified, but just a, a man sitting there playing a classical piece on an acoustic classical guitar. It sounded like that. I don't know the piece. I would never know the piece, but you know what I'm saying. It sounded like a guy playing classical guitar. He had it you know, perched on the wrong knee if you're a regular guitar player, but it looks more disciplined. You know, everything about playing classical guitar... Uh, <laughs> looks earned and um and he's just playing and it's it's pretty you know it's nice it's classical guitar music it's okay it was relaxing but like i didn't know exactly where it was coming from at first and i look over and i see the guy just over there off to the wherever the side sitting perched with his guitar in his guitar case they obviously allow entertainers to play uh in the uh foyer there at the portland airport but what was beautiful is there was this little boy. I guess he's around two. I don't know. I don't know how to read that because I don't have children of my own. But he was a little a little boy, probably about two. He was walking and standing. You know, looked like he was excited to be standing up. But he was just standing there in front of this classical guitar player, just entranced. You know, just like you know, you know could not shift his eye. Like just hypnotized by the classical music this little kid you know who's got no preconceptions got no understanding you know of what he's watching or what the sound is or what it's like just complete engagement with this beautiful uh elegant music and and i was completely fascinated and engaged with the kid watching the guy play guitar. I was engaged and fascinated in almost a childlike way watching a child who was engaged and fascinated in a childlike way because he's a child with a classical guitar player. It was just so beautiful to see a kid that innocent, so taken with something so uh, elegant and and beautiful and sounds uh, so uh, amazing. 
And then I look over to the right and there's his mother also uh, uh, fascinated and engaged with her kid, I'm assuming, watching the guitar player while he was fascinated and, get, and engaged. And uh, she was smiling. And then, like, I started to think, like, I, this, I, am I being weird right now? No. No. I didn't want to look weird, but I couldn't stop looking at this kid, looking at the guitar player because he was so into it. And then every once in a while, he'd do a little kid dance that didn't quite match up with the music, but I think it's just an excitement thing. And all I could think was like, this might be the moment. This kid might, you know, this might be the deciding factor of the future of his life. This moment right now might be wiring something into him that may guide him for the rest of his life. I don't know how. I'm not going to make any assumptions, but yet maybe he'll become a composer or a conductor or at the very least uh, a guitar player. I don't know, but I felt it was happening that there was a there was a um, some sort of uh, deep discovery going on. And I was very happy uh, it was that and not something on a, a screen or maybe a puppet show. It just felt deeper. And like it made me, uh, made my morning really. And like I, I, I witnessed the moment where he disengaged, but he was locked in for like a couple of minutes, you know. And I think that's kind of rare for kids that age. And then I saw the, then I saw him get distracted with nothing, just like something. It went away. The circuit was broken. But I, I think something was delivered, man. It was something to see. I know some of you are thinking like, ah, Mark, you should have a kid. So, Walter Hill. I'll tell you what I remember most. Like, outside of seeing Warriors when it came out, which was, what, yeah, where where was I in my life when Warriors came out? 1979, so I was in high school. How fucking great was that? I don't know if the movie holds up, but, like, at the time, it was fucking great. Can you dig it? warriors come out to play come on i didn't realize that he was so active in the 70s and he wrote the getaway and he uh the macintosh man the thief who came to dinner uh he he wrote and directed hard time like i there was a lot i learned and a lot i talked to him about but he was one of those guys when me and my buddy devin jackson were just sort of young film nerds we dug him we dug walter hill i remember when the long riders was was coming out and we were just sort of like how can this not be great man walter hill all the james gang but it's all brothers and they're really brothers in real life southern comfort with powers booth i was excited about that he did 48 hours i mean i don't know man he's he's from the old school and it was just a thrill to talk to him i like talking to directors and his new movie is uh is sort of a it's a messy trip man it's uh it's called the assignment it's available on itunes and video on demand it's a slasher movie and he's very aware of what it was and what it is and and how he made it and why he wanted to make it that way and it's uh of that genre which i don't watch a lot of i think it's pretty pretty uh pretty disturbing and uh kind of good you know in that way that the uh, slasher movies are i guess you call it slasher horror it doesn't matter if you want to watch it, go watch it. I didn't. I didn't realize when I talked to him that he was uh, that he directed Geronimo, which um, I don't know. Like I, it's one of those movies that like I John Milius wrote it. It's a very big movie with uh, Jason Patrick and Robert Duvall, Gene Hack. It was just he's a real deal director, and it was a real honor to have him. This is me talking 
to Walter. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts hill so your movies when i was younger i i was uh i always look forward to your movies i remember i it's funny i was going over them and i'm like holy shit i remember how excited we were for that uh for the long riders ah. it was a great movie thank you where'd you start out here i mean did you grow up here yeah, I was, I'm from, well, I always say Long Beach. Uh, yeah. My family worked in Long Beach. Uh, I actually grew up in Bellflower and went to Bellflower High, when, uh, but nobody knows where the hell Bellflower is. So now, Where is Bellflower? It's, let's let's it's, solve it. It's basically in North <laughs> Long Beach. So. Oh, okay, so it's down there. Yeah. And, and you just, uh, how, what was your family in the business? Was anyone no, in the... No, uh, no, they were, uh, my family's been in Southern California a long time. Uh, Since the Cowboys? No, my mother was born uh, downtown Los Angeles, the back of a grocery store. Uh, her parents owned a grocery store on, she was born on Slauson in Vermont, uh-huh. downtown. Uh-huh. They moved uh, into the Long Beach area. Grocery yeah. store didn't do terribly well. And, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> got out of that racket. Got out of that racket. So, yeah. uh, and my father's father was a wildcat oil Oh, really? Miller, and he ended up in the Signal Hill area of Long Beach, which, of course, was a, a big oil field back in the 1920s, 1930s. No 40s. kidding. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of oil. Yeah. It was the wonder field of the world at, at the time. And um, so. Uh, he was the guy on the machines? He was a driller, and then he became an owner and operator. You know, he, yeah. uh, he always said, as long as he wasn't drilling for his own. For himself, they were all big winners. But uh-huh. as soon as he drilled one <laughs> for himself, yeah. <laughs> the um, you come from a big family? No, brother. Yeah, uh, my folks had two kids. Yeah, brother and I. He go into show business? No. Yeah, he uh, ran the transportation department in the city of Long Beach for years. If it um, if it had wheels on it or was a boat in the harbor, yeah. I mean, buses, police cars, fire engines, and all that. He yeah. he was in charge of maintaining and purchasing. For the city. For the city. And it was a socially enormously useful job and yeah. uh, one that I probably couldn't handle oh, yes. for even a day. And uh, <laughs> uh, he was very good at it, and he finally he retired a couple years ago. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Had a good life, retired. Yeah, he's now devotes himself to the sports page and... Uh, relaxing yeah so how'd you get into pictures 
Well, we probably uh, told the story before, obviously, but I, yeah. I'm curious about the era. I, you know, I don't get the opportunity to talk to people about Hollywood when it was sort of a small town. Well, I usually just say, you know, I, I flunked my army physical. Uh, I was supposed to go in the army. I got out of school. Uh, but you wanted to go. I was, I was certainly willing to go. Yeah. And uh, the, but I, I, I was childhood asthma, so they said the last second. Uh, uh, I remember this guy. The guy came, but we were all standing there. Yeah, uh, in the in the raw, and the guy comes in and says, "Jesus Christ, they're not going to take us to fucking Fort Ord. They're going to take us to fucking Fort Polk, Louisiana." Oh, oh, you don't understand. I mean, you, you have no idea. How, it's the worst fucking place on earth. Really? Yeah. Well, the weather's horrible. And, the, yeah. and uh, but after you're done with basic at fucking Fort Polk, they they put you right into the light artillery. It's the place where the light artillery comes out of. Uh-huh. Light artillery? You know, what do we, you know? Yeah. He said, yeah, he says, that's everything with the infantry, except you have to wear, uh, take, uh, wear three times heavier pack. You got you to lug the fucking mortars around and the fucking mortar shells. <laughs> he says, it's the worst thing in the army. <laughs> oh, you know, he's God almighty. Port Polk, Louisiana. For that the was next your introduction, two, huh? Well, and then uh, you get to the last table, and the doctor says, well, I don't think we're going to need your services, Mr. Hill, and uh, we're uh, a childhood asthma. We don't want to a lot of allergies, and et cetera, so we'll make you one why. And so you probably dodged a bullet, literally. I guess so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway... I was at liberty. I thought my, I might get into journalism somehow, but uh, through a series of kind of accidents and small, I got I got connected to uh, people making uh, educational films, and suddenly, uh, and I was a great fan of movies. I just never could imagine making a living. Doing movies. Uh, doing movies. Really? And, and Even though there were movie stars? And I, I guess it seems like a far a stretch. Well, Long Beach was forever uh, yeah. distant from, from all that. But were you a movie fan <laughs> as a kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I was, you know, my brother and I, every weekend, four movies a week. Oh, uh, who were your yeah. favorites? Well, when you were a kid. See. I guess I liked the Westerns the best. But, yeah. Uh, you know, it was, I think I was pretty eclectic in yeah. my taste. Uh, uh, on Saturdays, you saw the first run movies, and on Sunday, you went over to the the other theater that that showed B westerns, uh-huh. and uh, so we we saw whatever came around. And um, so you weren't so locked in that you had favorite directors necessarily. Or oh, I didn't started. know what a director did. Sure, I knew, right. I knew it was the last credit. Yeah, uh, but uh, but loved 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 the whole experience. And yeah. You know, it was like a religious temple or something. You sure. went in, and they were gods, and they yeah. were larger than life. You know, my kids get uh, cheated out of this. They, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't miss anything. In, in the, you know, the, you you weren't going to come back. You weren't going to see the movie again. Yeah. So, you know, you had to hold a pee, and you, yeah, had, yeah. you know, and you either took food with you or – but you weren't going to – because anything you missed. And now, of course, you know – and the size of the screen was enormous. Huge. And uh, so the experience was very special. But now, you know, they they buy the buy the film and they can stop at any time they want. Watch on the computer. Watch on the computer. They can uh, watch on something that's not bigger than their uh, than their watch. 
and and also they can run it run it in slow motion they can sure. run it sideways they can do anything they want with it and if they think they miss something they'll just run it right back and yeah i think uh, that has diminished uh, the 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 specific power of the movie going experience yeah and it's, it's it's uh it's taken taken away the magic of, yeah. of it so much yeah it's a, it's sort of, it's a shame i think the magic is leaving everything slowly <laughs> yeah, yeah i suppose so but i do believe uh Look, I do think the human beast has a tremendous need for for stories, yeah. for entertainment. Uh, you know, I, I I believe you go to the smallest village in Tibet, not, yeah. that, not that I have, but there's an aerial on the small house and they're in there watching I Love Lucy or something. Yeah. And so that uh, we're obviously living through a time where the the delivery system is changing and where the where the story is being delivered is changing and yeah. the neighborhood theaters that i grew up with i mean they're vanishing and yeah there's a few around i guess uh, tarantino's doing something with that new beverly and yeah. there you know, some of the higher uh, end theaters are good but you're right i never really thought about it like that cuz lately i've been thinking just for myself when i watch something am i avoiding something else is this a distraction am i doing this as some sort of a uh, uh, you know pseudo drug experience to detach myself, but I think that there is a a need within. It's an emotional journey. It's it's necessary. It's sort of fortif- It's sort of, it's nourishing to the soul. Well, you know, it, yeah, we we have to somehow get our imaginary lives and it's some kind of wish dream fulfillment. Right. I, I've never. Uh, it's too deep for me, but uh, <laughs> you know, I. Uh, <laughs> I, but you like I a good say, story. I like a good story, and uh, I don't know. It's some. I always say that you know everybody has three lives. They, there's the, uh, you know, you and I meet today. We're yeah. doing this, and I present a certain framework to you. You present yeah. a certain framework to me. Our public persona. Uh, then we have our private life that we share with people that are very close right. with us. Usually, uh, yeah. Uh, Some, someone we drag through it. Yeah, us. drag through. And then you have your secret life of yeah. where it's inside your head, and it's and you basically share it with no one. Mm-hmm. I, I think just glimmers of it a, a bit. The safe uh, glimmers. Yeah, that won't cause too that's much right. trouble. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> and but I think that 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 part is what needs to be satisfied yeah. by the stories and the. I think that that's good. That's a good way. To, that's deep. <laughs> that works for me. So you're making you're making educational docs. Well, I never did. I mean, I I just worked on them, and then in what uh, capacity? Uh, I did research. Oh yeah, yeah, and then uh, I wrote parts of them. Uh, but I immediately said to myself, "What the fuck am I doing?" You know, I don't even like these movies. They're basically well, people sitting at a desk. You know, uh, as they used to say, riding with a feather. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> what was the company? It was an offshoot of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica movies. They used to make uh, these 16 millimeter films for uh-huh. uh, students, you know, uh, yeah. schools. Yeah. And um, I, suddenly I was in this environment of around filmmaking. And I somehow within, I don't know, a very short amount of time, I knew exactly what I wanted. I went from zero understanding to I wanted to write and direct movies and I I thought I'm, 
so I'm going to do it. So you and, can make the connection now. That yeah. you, you know, you're a little behind the scenes. Like, oh, this yeah. is, and it's not as daunting necessarily. And I, I, I was a good reader about films. I was not only a good uh, viewer. Yeah. And, and my taste had uh, improved a lot in in some ways in the last. In, the, in that few years, from the time I would say maybe seventeen, what was that? Was a mark? What was the indicator of that? I think uh, uh, the foreign, what we used to call foreign films, they were coming in. They were coming in, and I was a great. Uh, uh, I loved Kurosawa, and I loved oh, yeah. uh, to watch a Bergman or a yeah. Fellini or something. You know, like the, Seven Samurai, kind of like that movie. Seven Samurai, yeah. Rashomon is uh, both, yeah. uh, on the all-time list, sure, rightfully, yeah, and. Uh, I think when I really started to work and get going, it was somehow I would never have defined my own dream or yeah. anything, I, and which already sounds pretentious, but was to somehow, I, I always wanted to do action films, genre films. Sure. Uh, but to kind of inform them with what seemed to me to be this new vision coming out of Europe and and, uh, and Asia that... There was a less melodramatic. Uh, they were smart. The movies were smart. A little more to the to, to than meets the eye. Yeah, essentially. And, uh, yeah, they weren't. Uh, you know, Kurosawa could do an action movie. Yeah, uh, they were so good that they weren't even called action movies. They were dramas, but um, they were done with uh, a superior intelligence and uh, greater visual styles and more advanced editing and. Uh, so that was, to me, the paradigm to be kind of reaching for. And then some of the directors I fell in with, uh, uh, most particularly working with Peckinpah, I suppose, so, yeah. you know, shared that. Yeah, that, he was something idea. else. How, how did you, so how did you eventually make it onto sets and, and, and start, you know, engaging with the film business? Well, I became a uh, an assistant director. I was, while I was trying to make a living as a writer i would write at night but i got a job as a uh, well i at first an apprentice assistant director what we now call production assistant and then uh, i got into the director's guild as a second assistant yeah and i worked on a number of films i worked on uh, bullet and uh, take the money and run and take the money and run the woody allen movie yeah yeah, Woody's first film. I was the second on it. Really? Uh, that that must have been kind of funny because they were all bits and there's a lot of sketches almost. They were very it? funny. Well, he shot a lot of the movie. We shot the movie in the summer of 1968. Yeah. In San Francisco. Oh, this must have been crazy. But, uh, well, it was. And it was, you know, it looked like the country was falling yeah. apart. And mm -hmm. We were on the streets a lot of the time. But Woody then. Uh, I don't know what they uh, evaluated the film they had when he went home at the end of the summer, and then they shot a lot more in New York. Uh, they shot a lot more of the bits because it was a fake documentary, right? In my recollection, yeah, they they were. Yeah. Uh, it was the Virgil Stark uh, Starkwell, I think his name was. Yeah, and um, <laughs> which was a play on the Starkweather, who had been a real straight horrible, uh, yeah, killer horrible, guy. Yeah, and uh, he was fun to be around. And uh, and bullet, that bullet, that's a whole other experience. They they shot that in San Francisco too, didn't they? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was up there for. Mm, better part of a year and then i took off after uh bullet started in uh, february of 1968 yeah and we uh went about eight weeks over i think or something wow. who directed that, was, that one peter yates 
and uh, and we shot the chase right at the end. So uh, that was the chase that established the modern car chase. It sure did. That and, and uh, the French Connection, I guess, were yeah. the two big ones. Absolutely. And then the Take the Money was shot in the summer of '68. And then I took the fall and winter off and stayed up there, and I started writing with, I had enough money in my bank account for take the time to yeah, do that I could. Now, were you reading me. scripts and stuff? Were you doing, did you do television as well at that time? No, did I never did. Uh, yeah, I did read, of course. I read scripts. Uh, I had several complicated notions about all that. One, I thought, well, Christ. I think I can do this. Sure, if that's what they were buying. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the arrogance of, yeah. um, youth. of youth. Yes, uh-huh. I also was somewhat uh, distressed. It it seemed to me that almost all these scripts seemed to have been written by the same person. Yeah, uh, there was a kind of uniformity of style and approach to screenwriting that made it seem like it was coming out of some big machine. Uh, yeah. Occasionally, that's it's like anything you'd try to generalize about this business or something like that. Well, there, I think, there are exceptions. And, I think everyone's trying to do what makes money. So if, if someone's not particularly gifted, they're just going to format the thing. And also, they were not particularly reader-friendly. So I, taking these as my watchwords, tried to resist... Uh, one, I wanted to kind of make a mark with my scripts, I think, and I, yeah. wanted, I wanted to give them a certain style that uh, that evolved. Uh, uh, I thought they were almost all overwritten and all mel- way too melodramatic. A little too much information on the page? Yeah. yeah. And uh, also, because I had worked on movies, I knew nobody paid any goddamn attention to this to stuff anyway. direction. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> they just uh, knew when the new scene was. Yeah. So, uh, listen, I don't mean to demean. There were a lot of very talented, very hardworking screenwriters that um, had to work for very difficult people. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I didn't understand the full spectrum of it at that time. Indeed, yes. Yeah. The the wide. Uh, yeah. I forget they can't see my hand. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. yeah. Sorry. It was good. I got it right away. <laughs> so what was that script that you wrote? Well, the first script I wrote that became a film, I had sold a Western that did not get made. And then uh, uh, my problem was I never could finish anything. Yeah. I'd, I must have written 20 scripts and never quite. And then I finally said, look, you know. If you're going to do this, you better finish the goddamn. What was it? Was it a fear thing? Was it just a like a? I, I mean, I used to be like that, and then it's something weird. There's something weird about finishing things. <laughs> I think probably that, that may have been part of it. I just attributed it to uh, I had written myself into a box, you know, right. uh, uh, painted myself into a corner. Didn't know how to end it. Yeah, and just the strategy was wrong, or I felt that the it was headed in a wrong direction and. The only way to finish it was a kind of compromise, and the, this, and what the story was wouldn't even accept the compromise. You know, the, yeah, yeah. You, you you build up all kinds, sure, of, sure, uh, <laughs> very complicated reasons for non-performance, <laughs> and uh, a lot of reasons. Yeah, there's a lot of very that's all. very solid reasons for uh, your failure, I think and that's how some people use their imagination. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I. I had the uh, buckle down moment where uh-huh. we better start. Fin- and uh, uh, luckily, once I really started finishing scripts, I uh, 
I started selling almost right, uh, right, making a living at it right away. And I think the second thing I sold uh, became a movie. It was called Hickey and Boggs uh, with Robert Cope and Bill Cosby. And uh, I did a couple of, I got hired to do a couple of rewrites, and then I was hired to write The Getaway. Peter Bogdanovich hired me to write The Getaway. I talked to him. You did? I did. He's a character. He is. <laughs> he is indeed. Well, I imagine at that time, you know, judging by my experience with him here, is that he had a very, you know, he, not un unlike you're talking about, he had a true respect for, uh, for film, the medium and, and the power of film and the genre movie because he was very adamant and not necessarily being connected to that generation of directors that he came from because he saw himself as a guy that didn't want to necessarily break the mold but wanted to make amazing studio pictures. Yeah, he saw himself, I, I think, I, mean, I don't want to speak for him, but yeah. it is continuing the chain of great directors in the tradition of... Leo McCary and John Ford yeah, and Howard Hawks exactly, and, yeah. and uh, Raoul Walsh, etc. And uh, uh, he did not feel the this great uh, the the rush of 1968 and the need to uh, swing the hammer and smash the cement and yeah. kick it all aside. Yeah, go on to some new plane that was very much the fashion. Did you? Uh, I was probably a little more on Peter's side of the argument than uh -huh. than the other side, but uh, uh, because I had I, I really did have great reverence for so many uh, really good directors of the past. I you could see that the times were changing and that sure. something was going on, and you weren't going to be able to. My my feeling was that you were not going to reinvent the cinema. That that was insane, but uh -huh. it was a lot of the talk at the time. Uh, it's hard to, I think it gets, it's hard to imagine how crazy things were, you know, yeah. back then. But uh, I certainly thought that genre filmmaking, although it was going to change, could be uh, redone in a way, pulling things inside out and mixing genres, and uh, that you could make them fresh and that an audience would grab onto them. And 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 you know, if you're working here, you have to be thinking about: Am I going to be able to? find an audience for right. this because otherwise you don't get you don't come back to the party right um and in those days you know the means of production to use the great marxian term the means of production were totally held by the studio yeah. so you had to kind of somehow get into this club and and function within it and it was so uh, you know what's an audience what, what do they want well there was an old expression that if uh the story. If you're going to tell a new story, you had to put the characters in old clothes, and if you're going to tell an old story, you had to put the characters in new clothes, because <laughs> I've never heard. Yeah, that. old clothes, old story, dead. Yeah, new story, new clothes. Nobody knows. Nobody yeah. can attach themselves to right. it. It's too far. New story, old clothes. New story. You might be in business, or old story, new clothes. You know. Sure. Old, you might be in business. And then it turns out there are all old stories in new clothes. <laughs> well, you know, Borges uh, says there are only two stories. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you boil them down. What are they? Uh, the Crucifixion. Yeah. And The Odyssey. Okay. That's probably that's probably about right. It's pretty hard to think of anything that doesn't. Uh, Fall within that. Know, 
<laughs> I, you might also say if you make your categories wide enough, uh, yeah. everything will. Sure. Yeah, but, uh, well, it's interesting you said that so many people, you know, thought they had this vision that they were going to reinvent cinema, but what they ultimately did was just expand it, you know, broaden an audience, right? I mean, the, the 60s did something. I mean, they did, didn't reinvent cinema, but they certainly, you know, created uh, a shift, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there was a paradigm shift that uh, in storytelling, you yeah. know, there were so many... Uh, well, you know, Friedkin's French Connection, Billy's movie, uh, just the ending was such a, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 the technique of making the film yeah. and the, uh, the the approach to character, the Popeye. And, you know, finally, it's a really good example of New Clothes' old story, except he put a, there was a new ending, a much different and very adult, and we're still trying to figure out what the hell happened. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and the whole approach to character that uh, oh, yeah. Hackman played. And uh, you'd never seen a cop like that. So the getaway. So you start that with Peter. And then it, how does it well, move? Well, Peter and uh, Steve uh, uh, had a separation. Uh, McQueen a nice guy? Is he a nice guy? I liked Steve. I yeah. did. Uh, he, was, uh, he was a very wary personality. He uh -huh. was uh, uh, aware of the pitfalls that can be followed. An actor, he he saw himself very much as. Um, it doesn't sound kind what I'm about to say, but uh -huh. but I I don't mean it that way. He saw himself very much as a star. Yeah, and he thought of a star as being, uh, as most people did in those days, a lot more than being an actor. Uh huh. And he felt his responsibilities as a star. He felt his responsibilities to his audience. Right. And they wanted to see him win. Right. They wanted to see him be right who, he wasn't going to dirty himself up well he wasn't going to uh not be what he felt the image of mcqueen was uh -huh. and he didn't because he was not going to let his fans down and yeah. he would he would justify a lot of things in terms of no they don't want to see that or they yeah they, uh, he was a very generous actor in some in in the sense of he didn't care that much about taking the dialogue he would quite often give dialogue away uh -huh. or, and he was certainly masterful at, yeah at uh saying we don't need to say this and uh, oh yeah well he's yeah. a pretty subtle actor oh yeah yeah he was a he was a great uh you know he he understood his power he could dominate a scene with a look yeah and uh or just a simple gesture you know he could somebody would be talking away and he could just reach over and grab an apple and start to peel the apple and, right you know yeah. and that, now some might say that's a cheap way to upstage and others would say you know it's it was an absolute reflection of his persona and who he was playing in that particular uh film yeah they're both can exist those interpretations yeah and uh but he was a wary personality yeah he uh he didn't uh he didn't allow, uh, you know, a posse to build up that so many of the very successful superstars do. Sure, he was, he was not not like that. He was, a, I think, he was really at 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 most comfortable around his friends that had to do with cars and motorcycles. Yeah, that was his thing. Yeah. Well, it was, but it was more than a hobby. I mean, he had a real, he had a tremendous gut instinct for uh, mechanics, mm -hmm. uh, making something go fast. I mean, that was. 
That's what made him good for the getaway. That's it. Made him made him very good for. <laughs> uh, it, and it, he felt it right down to uh, the essence of it. He, yeah. He. he um, Did you write it? So you were working with Peter on it, but you ended up writing your own script for it. Well, it was uh, an adaptation of a Jim Thompson novel. Oh, Jim's great, huh? Just uh, he, just, he was just passed away, didn't he? No, it's no, been, a, been a few years. Oh, has now. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Peter uh, was directing Barbara Streisand in the What's Up Doc. Yeah, and Steve decided that he couldn't wait, and that we had to get rolling. So they encouraged me to quickly finish the first draft, which I did. Uh, and uh, Sam came in. Sam agreed, uh, read the script, and was willing to work with Steve again. They had had a somewhat explosive relationship on uh, Junior Bonner, I think it was. And uh, But they had great respect for each other. And uh, although the, uh, Steve threw a magnum of champagne at... Uh, Sam's head in one story conference, I remember. Uh, I actually was not there, but I saw the hole in the wall. The really? Next, the next he day. meant it. Uh, yeah, if, uh, you know, it was one of the few times where Sam really was, he said, you know, motherfucker would have killed me. If, uh, no kidding. <laughs> so, so when you did the getaway, now it sounds like you were pretty engaged with the whole process. I mean, were you on set as well? And yeah, uh, I got called off. Uh, I was going to be on set, but I got called off. I had to do a thing for Warner Brothers, and I went to England and Ireland to work with John Houston on a script that Paul Newman ended up doing, uh, the movie that Paul Newman. Holy shit, ended. John Houston, that must have been something. It was, uh, uh, the experience was a lot better than the movie, I'm sorry to say. Which and, movie was that? Well, it ended up being called The Macintosh Man. Oh, yeah. It was uh, It was called, uh, the, the novel was The Freedom Trap. Uh-huh. But, um, but it wasn't a terribly good movie. I liked no, I liked working with John. That was a lot of fun. Well, and with 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 someone like Sam, as you said, he, that he had some uh, influence on your approach to filmmaking. Because like, I think like I I love Peck and Paul movies, and there was a period there in my life where I once a year I'd watch about five of them. Yeah, because he come from the old studio system and then really broke the mold, right? Absolutely. And and there was something that I can see, like even in the getaway. That the kind of, uh, you know, exploring the emotions or the, you know, the possibilities of male characters is something he was really good at. And I think that that character, it seems, in The Getaway, you know, was a thoughtful, kind of intense, you know, a lot under the surface kind of guy, right? I mean, what did you really pick up from Sam? Well, I think more than any, I, I, I think I understood through him how committed you had to be to what you were doing. Yeah. Uh, he he demanded he was a rather fierce personality he was he was not an easy fellow to be around yeah uh, he, he, you always somebody said and I, I know exactly what they meant it was like you were in some movie except only he knew the dialogue and you didn't and there were kind of odd pauses and interesting but we got along well i i, I certainly like he knew how much i admired him which is always a good start i yeah. suppose and um he uh smart director man he was he was very he was very smart he was his own as the old thing yeah worst enemy but uh uh i don't think the getaway is his finest effort uh 
I think it's a good movie, and it it did very well. It was the most commercial movie he ever made. The, uh, but he he was. Um, I really think it was the last movie he did where he was fully in control of his medium, that he uh, that his drinking hadn't gotten out of hand yet. I mean, he uh -huh. was certainly drinking a lot. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't think it got to him uh, on that film the way it did. But he was a very complicated guy. Yeah. And he, uh, he had a – and he was constantly searching – for those not loyal, and uh, you know, there was a lot of that paranoid. There, yeah, he had a uh, he had an alcoholic's kind of yeah paranoid personality. The uh, something that I had observed a great deal in my own family. So you avoided it. I never wanted to be uh, Sam, and I never were. We were always friendly. He was very encouraging to me after uh, we did the movie. He'd call me every once in a while. I'd call him every once in a while. He was uh, uh, very encouraging about me. You know, at first he would say, "You sure you want to get into this shit?" And uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. the uh, but uh, about directing, but uh, but he was uh, very encouraging. But he was tough. Yeah, and. Uh, and he'd say sometimes he'd say what the fuck were you thinking of you know that was what about when you when you started directing yeah and so uh, you stayed in touch with him oh yeah yeah not not a lot we, yeah. we were we were not close yeah uh it was just never going to work that way i'm not a hangout kind of guy and uh he wanted more than almost anybody could give he didn't hang out with anybody except he had a uh a small coterie of very close, yeah, very devoted friends, right, and they would drink together almost every night. I yeah. remember Warren Oates telling me, he said, "You know, everybody always thinks I'm one of Sam's guys." He said, "I can't." He said, uh, "I love him, but he said I can't take it." He said, "You know, those fucking guys, they just they get in trouble every night." And uh, it's smarter and, than that. Yeah, he just said, "You know, I I can't deal with it." So, what was the first movie you directed? I did a movie called Hard Times. Oh, with, yeah, Charles uh, Bronson. Charlie Bronson and Jim Cohen. Boxer movie. That's right, street fighting back in the 30s. Yeah, and uh, how would you feel about that one? Well, I, 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 uh, it got me going, yeah. and it uh, the movie was well-received, and it did pretty well, so uh, it, it... Got you started. Got me started. I was very... I liked the movie. I thought Charlie was very good in it. I thought Jimmy was good in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Charlie and I had a kind of problem in post-production. Uh, his wife, Jill, was in the movie, and he felt that I had uh, not been particularly kind to her in the editing, and uh, so Charlie and I had a rather sharp breakup on that. Did and, you get into a fist fight? Uh, no. <laughs> He'd have killed me, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, and I didn't seem for... Uh, but it certainly destroyed our our relationship but yeah. people often ask me you know why didn't you ever work with him again and that <laughs> I, was it <laughs> i was just like son of a bitch wouldn't even speak to me so when and then you and then you're sort of on your way and you do the you do the driver which uh you work with ryan o'neill a few times didn't you well i had written a uh i had rewritten a script called the thief who came to dinner that ryan yeah. did but he and i really didn't know each other then uh we'd met but uh 
then he, yes, he agreed to do The Driver. The Driver uh, was my second film. It was somewhat experimental in nature and probably um, had I not been making another film at the time it came out would have drummed me out of the business, but uh, it was a complete financial and critical failure in this country. But it was but what it was sort of it was a respected film though. I mean it got, had found an audience, right? Overseas or, or It was a it became uh yeah, it it did all right. Like for, a cult movie. Yeah, and it it slowly has built up a reputation in in this country, I'm happy to say. Uh Edgar Wright has just <laughs> made a, a movie called Baby Driver that is in some ways oh really derivative uh, <laughs> yeah, i'll a, leave you to he's a great talk. guy he's a great guy yeah and uh very funny he's very, i'm good friends with edgar yeah. and uh i i sometimes hate to think of what would have happened had i not been shooting the warriors when the driver came out because uh the reception to it was not very good i think uh you know those days studios would send you reviews they would collect them over the weekend and everything i got in the American reviews, and it's Christ, it's about the size of a small <laughs> phone book. Came after you, huh? I got one good review. I got one fucking review that was any good. It was Dave Kerr. I remember it very well. Dave Kerr in the Chicago Reader gave it a beautiful review. He got it. He got it. Yeah. And uh, but it was actually very well reviewed in Europe, and it was did well in. It's the old joke, you know. Yeah. Did, well, it did well in Japan, and uh, what do you think the drop off was? I mean, like if you were to look, like really consider it at that time, what was the aversion? I mean, for their well, I think there were several things. I think in the first place, I, I think the movie just stylistically wasn't particularly audience friendly. Uh, it was a rather abstract way to tell the story. Uh, I think also, and I, I have no. I think Ryan is very good in the movie. I thought he did everything as uh, as well as I could ever hope yeah. an actor could do with the part uh, as a writer-director. I was very pleased with Ryan. But I don't think the audience accepted him. I think they wanted the guy that was in Love Story. Right. They want, they, they couldn't accept him in a grittier role. No. They, they, they didn't... Uh, they didn't accept him in the Steve McQueen role, you know. Right. And, and I think uh, that was a problem he had a lot. Well, I, I suppose you know he had uh, his previous film had been the Kubrick, right? Oh, Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon. Yeah. And that had, you know, at the it's time, not an easy movie. It's not an easy movie, and it was at the time perceived to be not a success. Mm. Uh, but I, I liked Ryan, and he. Uh, he liked doing the movie, you know. And yeah. He liked driving, and he, sure. liked, he was a very physical guy. I yeah. saw him. Uh, he had this tape, you know. He, he uh, Ryan was a good boxer, and uh, he worked out. He did. He he fought three rounds, three or four rounds with Joe yeah. Joe Frazier. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And, no kidding. Uh, well, I don't think Joe was, uh, you know, turning on the steam, but. Yeah. Uh, Still, he Ryan looked quite credible. You know, he yeah. had, he had the moves. Sure, that, sure. That, he knew uh, how to do it. He knew how to do it. Yeah. But the Warriors, that was the one. I mean, that was the one when I was a kid. You know, we went and we were like, "What the fuck? This is insane!" <laughs> like I I can still remember it. You know, the power of it. Uh, uh, y- you know, it was. 
because well, I don't I don't know how much we knew about New York or the possibilities of that, but uh, the costumes and everything was just sort of a it was pretty spectacular movie. What was that guy's name? That little guy. He shows up in Spike Lee movies and stuff. Uh, well, his character name was Luther. Yeah, and um, uh, David Kelly is, yeah. is David Patrick Kelly. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was great. Name. Oh, he's a wonderful actor. Yeah, and with, with the guy. bottles, warriors. Yeah, he. Uh, he, yes, the, the, that moment that is often quoted, uh, I have to give him uh, the credit for. We it was the car was coming down. And I said, you know, Jesus Christ, this is not. We need. I said, you know, you see him. We I don't want to just do a reaction. I said, think I, they were they wanted me to go over here and check this out. And I said, uh, uh, think of some fucking thing to say. I don't care. Sing to him if you want. Yeah. But you know, make them know your presence and taunt them. And uh, then I w- went over to the camera that we were getting ready to do on the next shot. Yeah. And then I came back, and I saw him out of the corner of my eye. I saw him. He jumped out of the car, and he ran under the uh, pier, and he grabbed some uh, old beer bottles that were there, just yeah. trash. Yeah. And he ran back into the car, and uh, so I said, okay, uh, ready to shoot. Okay, uh, let's rehearse one more, and then we'll shoot action and yeah. he does the clinking clink, clink, clink. yeah and i thought this is what a real director is about is you don't get in the middle of this yeah you just yeah just, just shoot it yeah and uh but that was very much you know that was uh, all him huh well it was you know in a way it's kind of what directors do it's what actors are supposed to do yes he he deserves the lion's share of the credit uh-huh but at the same time I created an opportunity, right? Sure, and and uh, I was open to something that wasn't in the script, and so I give myself a little. I'll give myself twenty percent on that. And what was the base? Where'd you get that story? I mean, like you know, those guys with the baseball bats and the makeup. I mean, obviously, you know, I'd been to New York, and I, you know, if that if that world existed, it was outside of my periphery. But you, for some reason, you wanted it to exist. Yeah, it was. I wanted to do something. It was a little bit sci-fi, a little bit futuristic, but at the same time, it had to have the crack of reality right. to it. And uh, you know, it's almost a musical in some ways. Guess, yeah, uh, the costumes. Yeah, yeah and uh, uh, and I just thought of it as it was a crazy place, and I wanted it to push the envelope. There was a scene. It was from a novel by Saul Urich. The, the novel is meant to be. Fairly realistic, and it's kind of a Trotskyite division, uh, 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 I would say. And but there was a scene in the novel where one of the characters is reading a comic book, and the comic book is the Xenophon story uh, from classic Greek literature, and but it was in a comic book, and the and the characters uh, the character in the book says hey these guys are just like us hey you know they're running away from and i and i said to myself that's how to do the movie <laughs> do it like a comic book do it do it weird and strange and yeah and let the greek stuff jump if if it's there for anybody who wants to see it but i think really you know the why did you react the way you reacted you asking me yeah, because I think it was not you were not unique in the uh, going. Whoa, you know, hey, this is really something, and I think a lot of it 
was really it was a movie where you know they had made a lot of gang movies before and right. all that kind of business but the, the what was different yeah that we did was we didn't examine it as a social problem movie it it was you just took it you amplified it to like a, a, you know, a, we suggested that the gangs were a uh, a rational uh, choice for people in survival situations and also each gang had their own personality and there were so many of them you really yeah. you, you were excited to see what the theme was and the movie didn't suggest that it was tragic that these characters were not going to become uh-huh. lawyers and doctors right. and college right. graduates and etc accepted them on their own terms it wasn't a societal problem they were their own society that's right and uh and i think that was a very different thing at that moment now yeah. now it's very commonplace so i guess but there was still never i've never seen anything with that many gangs it's just that each you know it took that old 50s riff you know of territory to this other degree like there were all these people that had territory but there were so many gangs and they were so specifically different through their uniforms and and you know their their approach to being a gang and the warriors were sort of a throwback they were like a classic you know just a leather vest right kind of gang and the other ones were sort of spectacular, you know, and and, and it just created uh, you know something yeah, different. They were the simple folk, right? And um, you know, just a few internal problems, but basically, young James Remar. Uh, yeah, he was. Um, he had internal problems on top of who, internal problems. Who uh, who elected you war chief? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, that guy. He was. Uh, uh, yeah, had the harsh voice. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Remar's very good in it, and he was wonderful for me in Forty Eight Hours, and wonderful for me in several other films. You know, Jimmy's, he's good. Yeah, oh, Jimmy's a terrific actor. He yeah. really is, man. Yeah, very intense, very focused. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's he's. It hasn't had an he hasn't had an easy road, but he's yeah. He's a uh, he's a tremendous talent. I love him. Yeah. And, and that started the role there, Warriors. Then you go to the Long Riders, and that was when we were just so thrilled at because of the brother thing. The casting all the brothers, the Carradines with the Quades, the Christopher Guest and his brother, and who was the other one? The other big Carradines, Quades? Uh, the Keeches. Oh, yeah, the Keeches. I got a chance to make a West, my first Western, and I was happy as a pig in shed. Yeah. I, mean, I was just... Love, love making it. Love shooting it, having the horses well, out. Well, it was, and... a, you know, I'd, I'd always wanted to make westerns. Yeah. And um, uh, so I got my first first chance at it. And uh, and the casting was your idea? No. Uh, I'd love to tell you it was, but uh, uh, James Keach had been in a play, some off-Broadway thing, mm-hmm. where he was uh, played Jesse James. Mm-hmm. So he had the notion that it'd be good to do a movie where he was Jesse James. <laughs> and he went to Stacy and said, you could be Frank. And he said, we ought to, and they had all these friends. And he said, well, you know, these gangs were all related, uh, the the uh, Youngers and yeah. the Millers, and they were all related and they all came from the same area uh, in Missouri. So uh, it's really a Midwestern, <laughs> you know. The thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, as I said, a green Western. Uh-huh. And... Uh, so they uh they got an agreement among all the of all these brothers and they got to Tim Zinneman, who uh was an old friend of mine and Tim brought brought it all to me and I said, Well, I think we got a lot of work on the script here. Yeah. I always said you know, we never really worked the 
story out very well, but uh, there's a lot of good scenes, yeah. and uh, the characters are good. Yeah. You know. And they're all good. They're good actors. Good I mean, act- they're, they're good actors. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, like, Southern Comfort, I remember that coming out because Powers Booth was so intense and menacing. I don't remember the story, but I remember being scared of the swamp. <laughs> it was a it was a tough movie to make. It's, yeah, the swamp was unforgiving, and yeah, Powers and Keith. Yeah, were the leads, and uh, they were both very good in it. And uh, and then and then the then the huge forty eight hours was a game changer for for movies, in a way. <laughs> well, you're very kind. I think uh, the um, uh, yes, for good or bad. I think uh, I, I always say this about. I'm sure they're better movies than 48 hours i thought it was a really good one uh, but i've never i've never seen a movie that's been imitated more i mean it's just well that the, the you know taking the good cop bad cop thing to to this this area of comedy where you don't remove the menace you know and the stakes are still kind of high you know, was I? I don't think that was done very much. You know, I, I noticed not long ago. I, I rewatched like Freebie and the Bean with uh, Khan and Arkin. That you know, there was a time where these movies that were essentially comedies, there was still a lot of. Bo- There's a pretty high body count. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I just thought that 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 dynamic between the two of them, it was a real. Well, gift. I I always said that look, the uh, we're going to make it like a real tough thriller. Yeah. Uh, and if you accept it as an action movie, it'll be very funny. Yeah. Uh, if you try to tell everybody it's a comedy, they're going to get a little mixed up. And uh, uh, and also, I, I always said when we're making it, don't play a joke. Don't play jokes. You know, the the, the humor will be there. <laughs> it's in the attitude and in the character. So when you had uh, Eddie, I mean, like you know, that guy well, was Eddie on was fire. just see Eddie was just uh, it was the perfect moment for him to make a debut yeah. he was he was coming out of saturday night live and uh uh he did something that uh, there had been a series of people coming out of saturday night live and having great movie careers instantly great uh, belushi and yeah. bill murray etc yeah. etc and dan Aykroyd, all those guys they had these fabulous careers but what they had done was they had jumped from saturday night live to comedies yeah eddie jumped to a very different kind of movie which opened up a whole new world for him of choices yeah he could make movies uh well for instance beverly hills cop would never have happened right had he just done a conventional comedy right as his debut I right mean, in my opinion right anyway. well because yeah he was able to go he to have an edge uh you know yes. not just be a broad comedy yeah. character. no he could credibly yeah carry a gun yeah uh have tough attitudes, yeah, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Which uh, <laughs> that that dynamic between him and Nolte was too much. Nolte is too much. He's something else, man. Well, you know, he um, <laughs> <laughs> he was. Uh, I remember when um, he's the only guy in the world that calls me Walt, uh-huh. I, I, which I don't like, but <laughs> uh, but I'm quite happy to take it from him. But he'd. Uh, I came back from New York. I'd gone back there to meet Eddie because he was shooting. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night Live, and I said, "I'm going to go with this guy, uh, Nick." And uh, I said, "You know, he's—it's going to be his first movie, and he's—he's he's tremendously talented." I said, "He's not an actor. You know, he's not going to be. Maybe he'll be an actor by the time the movie's over. Right? And uh, he's going <laughs> to need your help. But I'm going to tell you this, Nick. Uh, 
It's going to be like doing a movie with a, a little kid or a dog. <laughs> you got to be good every take. Yeah. Because the one take he's good, we're printing it. Yeah. Oh, that's not fair, Walt. God damn it. <laughs> I, I want to, you know, and <laughs> I said, that's the way it's going to be. Dan. Did it turn out that way? I mean, or did he well, show up in ways you didn't anticipate? I, number one, Nick was good in every day. You know, Eddie, 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 yeah. Yeah, Eddie was not good in every day. Yeah. Eddie was all over the place. Oh, yeah. But it's the it's the old thing. Uh, you only use the good one. Right. And, he was uh, all over the place in that he wanted to riff. Yeah, and he was just, he was not comfortable as an actor. You know, right. It was a very different world for him. Yeah. And, but, you know, he was, you, look. The guy is an enormous talent. You <laughs> yeah. couldn't hold it down. Yeah. And but Nick was good. It, you know, we always when we were editing the movie, we always said anytime Eddie's in trouble, cut to Nick. Yeah. Because Nick was always doing something interesting, or he was always writing in character. And yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he's and uh, they, and they loved each other. Yeah. You know, they, they they did. Oh yeah, they they got along great. Yeah, Nolte was like I don't know. He's some um, he's he's always interesting. I'll tell you that. And that well, you wrote that one, and then I, if I am I wrong in noticing that like there was some? Did you start to sense? I don't know if it was in you know who you used as a cinematographer or or your own sense that you you, you were there was a style that to your movies. Do do you believe that <laughs> in lighting and whatnot? Because uh, I remember that that when when Remark comes out of the smoke almost like I remember uh -huh. there was some sort of vibe that you know you could see in Streets of Fire. I can see in the new one. I don't know, always know how that happens with directors. Well, it's uh, part of the job, Mark. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, we work very hard on the getting the look right. Yeah, and it's always a little difficult. Uh, I mean, that's two thirds of what you do. The uh, I think people are always you know. There's a famous story yeah. about William Wyler, who was one of the four or five probably historically most successful important directors in the history of hollywood and he uh was always known as this fabulous director of actors yeah the, the performances in wyler's movies i think i think he still has the record of most nominated performances and things like that and the the young actor that comes over to him and says uh my first day mr wyler uh just like to know what you'd like me to do in this scene and he said fuck you get in there and act <laughs> I'll tell you if it's good or not, but don't. He said, "I'm I'm a movie director. I'm not a goddamn acting coach." <laughs> Get your ass in there, and we'll see how it works. <laughs> and now that's a, an extreme example, yeah. but uh, but there's a there is a kind of a lot of people think what a film director is. Is is closer to their conception of what an acting coach is, right? That you're, I think that's right. Yeah, that you're sitting there talking to the actors about, well, do you think that maybe if he was motivated to do this, right? And based on whatever he, had, you know, it's not like that. Yeah, you know, you're. Uh, I was always very taken by how often uh, actors in discussing working with great directors, whether it was Hitchcock or John Ford or Howard Hawks or or uh, many, many. Yeah. Uh, the the one common thing they'd always say is they never directed. Yeah. They never talked to, you know. They just, right. They just put the cameras up. Well, I remember Peckinpah. You, you asked about Peckinpah. Peckinpah told me about 75% of the job was casting. 
He said, if you cast it right, then you just you got to shoot it and shoot it in a good way, stage it. Well, yeah, you're paying for them to do the no. thing that they do, but, right? Uh, yeah, he said, <laughs> you know, it's casting. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, but it leads you into uh, it's more complicated now. Like it's, uh, you know, I, I think I really think this that the actors and directors there's there is a shall we say a natural tension between the two. Uh huh. Uh, crafts um, actors tend to believe that they can play anything they, they there's they're not often given enough of an opportunity for the breadth of their talents <laughs> okay and yeah. directors tend to believe that if they haven't seen the person do it before they can't do it right and therefore <laughs> they don't want any fucking mistakes when they go out there because the but because if you make a mistake in casting the price you're going to pay is very high yeah so if you've cast somebody that can't do the part in a reasonable way in the way you want then you um, got to get them out yeah and i think in you know the, the the really the truth is they're both they're both wrong uh uh, actors can't play just anything, you know. Yeah. They, they do have limitations. I think they're right. They can probably play a lot more than they're given a chance to. Uh, right. A lot of times. Right. And the directors are wrong that they're they are too limiting quite often. Although there is another. See, again, we're talking in cliches, which yeah. is my fault. But uh, since I'm doing the talking here, but um, so many of the young directors now want to cast against. The type, yeah. So they'll, in in my estimation, often foolishly cast so far against the type that the part lacks credibility. I'm not right. going to give any examples. But yeah, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but um, but is that part of the? Is that an ironic position uh, that they're taking? I, I mean, well, do you think they the, know that? That's the defense. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but you think it's like, yeah, they fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did you like? And also, like, I don't want to just like, obviously we can't go movie to movie, but but you did work with uh, Pryor, and you know you work with Murphy, you work with Pryor on Brewster's Millions. How was that experience? Well, it was mixed. Uh, I probably I was I think my own arrogance. Uh, I had gotten I had this feeling that I could get laughs when I wanted uh, in movies because we had. Had good. Uh, there was a lot of humor in the Warriors, and yeah, the, and the uh, and there was a lot of humor in the Long Riders, and of course, Forty Eight Hours had sure. A, uh, but you didn't write that as a comedy. Forty Eight Hours. You just thought you you were you shooting. A, you were writing a straight. No, no. Thriller. I thought we'd get. I yeah. thought we'd get laughs. Yeah. But I just didn't want them to play a joke. Right. But so I, uh, I was presented the idea of Brewster's Billions. I. So I thought, okay, I'm going to show I can do this, and yeah. uh, uh, a pretty much straight ahead comedy. And I, but the, I think that was part of it. The uh, the other part of it, it was a lot more positive than that, which was I had a tremendous respect and admiration. I didn't know him for Richard. Yeah, and Richard at that time had. Uh, was just coming back. He had only done one movie since what they, those close to him, always said his accident. Sure. Uh, and so he was in, uh, in a fragile state of mind. I think yeah. that was pretty much a constant with him. Uh, uh, he was usually either very defensive or very agitated. Yeah. And uh, 
But the experience, uh, Richard felt that if he uh, didn't take drugs, he probably wasn't funny. Yeah. And he also felt that if he took drugs, he'd die. Tough position. That's about as tough a position. And and the problem is compounded by uh, the persona of John Candy. Yeah. Who was in the movie, had an enormous part in the movie. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Wonderful guy. But, yeah. And John was one of these guys. As soon as he walked through the stage door, he was on and he was funny. And he loved being funny to the crew, and he, yeah. you know, he knew everybody's name, yeah. and uh, and he would make jokes about, you know, your family, and this. Yeah. He he just learned, and he was always on, and he was just loved and funny, a great guy, great yeah. guy, and very good in the movie. Well, Richard was not an outgoing person. Richard was very was very much a performer when he performed, but he was not a funny guy. Just off, yeah. yeah, off, and and he would stand kind of hunched over. He spent most of his time in his trailer, but but he, I remember, he would be this and kind of hunched over, watching Candy, getting the laughs. Yeah, getting the laughs with, uh, and then every once in a while, it was so sad. He he'd kind of try to turn something on with the crew. Yeah, and you could feel it was just awkward. Yeah, you could feel competition, and, and yeah, yeah, and people would try to laugh because yeah. they and Richard would realize they're. They're not really laughing. They're yeah. trying to laugh to indulge oh, me. Yeah. So it was like, ay, ay, ay. Yeah. What the fuck? Sad. Uh, sad. Yeah. So, uh, but Richard liked the movie. He he uh, told me several times that, uh, and as years went by, and he became very, you know, it was uh, his favorite, he felt. I don't think it's his best by any means, but I... I know why he because the movie took him on uh, as an actor. He played a comedic, you know, it was it was a comedic lead as an acting yeah, role, right? And uh, and he liked that. He didn't have to be uh, a low comedian, I guess is the right. Uh, and he didn't have to be the guy. And he didn't have to be the guy. Yes, and and. Uh, so he had this enormously uh, uh, warm spot in his heart for the movie. This is right. He's he, probably he, grateful too uh, in that transition pay, that period. And I think he grew to trust me. He yeah. started out. He was again a very wary personality. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he, you know, I was always pretty straight with him. I, I think you know, there's always moments where you probably are feathering the truth a little yeah. but uh but uh but I liked him a lot and I certainly I had great respect for him and uh so it was picture did well uh was not terribly well received but picture did well and then it became this other thing it became uh, on television it became this kind of enormous success uh-huh on uh kids loved it oh yeah little kids liked it and uh uh, so it had a second life. Oh, that's good. Yeah. How did you get involved with the Aliens franchise? I was sitting around the office one day, and a guy I knew, Mark Haggard, uh, uh, literally handed me a script through the window. It was a hot day. Yeah. The window was open. I said, hey, Mark. 
He said, hey, we've been looking for you. Couldn't find the office there. And he said, I want you to read this script. And uh, I read the script, uh, called him. I said, you know, it's not very good, but it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think something. And I had my partner, David Geiler, read it. And David, I remember it was, uh, it was when the Democratic National Convention, Carter uh-huh. was, Carter was give, giving his speech. And, yeah. uh, and David called me about 10 minutes into the speech, and he and he said, uh, I'm reading this script. He's, you know, who gives a shit what's going on in the <laughs> convention? And he said, I'm reading this script. He said, he said this is terrible. <laughs> and I said, keep reading. Yeah. And three minutes later, he calls back, because I think it was on page 35 or something. And he says, I see what you mean. We ought to see if we can get this. Yeah. And it was the chest burster scene. <laughs> yeah. So we had this notion, if you could take the script, turn the script into uh, a solid something, yeah. uh, we could get it on that if you treated a B movie like an A movie, made it real slick. Yeah. Uh, that it would could be a real commercial movie because the framework was there. And but you like the egg laying in the stomach thing. Oh yeah, yeah that yeah. was yeah that was, that was <laughs> and uh, the instincts were there. So uh, we redid the, the studio had actually already seen the script and it passed. And they, uh-huh. couldn't, they couldn't even believe that we wanted to. Pick oh it really? Up, yeah, they, yeah, they did, and uh, and then it became a. a, a a trek to get it on, you know. It, and you uh, did a pass on the script? Yeah, I did several. Uh, I did several passes. I made the uh, the lead character a woman, uh, worked out several things. Then David came back. He had gone off to Hong Kong with his girlfriend, and David came back. And then we did a couple of drafts together. But by then, the studio had read what we were doing and they were they were now they they they, they kind of saw what we saw yeah and then uh, so then the hunt became uh, first the hunt became who was the filmmaker going to be and we uh, uh, offered it to about 35 directors uh, I didn't want to direct it myself I didn't think I was really going to be good at the kind of model work yeah and, effects work that was right. then. This, this is long before the CGI revolution yeah, and all that. sure. And uh, I didn't think I was either had the patience or or the technical expertise to pull that off. And so we offered it out to about 35 directors, I think. They all passed. They just, no, this is, you know. <laughs> and then we sent it to Robert Aldridge. And Aldridge called, called us over. Incidentally, I think the characterization... Robert Aldrich on this thing that they're doing on television now is uh, is an outrage and a travesty. Which one? Uh, uh, feud. Oh, yeah. Betty Day. You know, Robert Aldrich uh, was a tremendous man, courageous man, and the idea that they're doing this to his memory. and What are they doing to him? I didn't watch it. Oh, they're making him a weak... Uh, second-rate director who didn't even develop the property, which is an outrageous lie. Yeah. Uh, and they're presenting him as this weak, vacillating person that uh, does whatever the studio wants him to do. Yeah. Does whatever the... Sleeps with the uh, leading ladies to make the film 
go a little smoother, uh, takes orders from the actors on the set. I mean, it's just, especially Robert Aldrich. This yeah. is one of the toughest guys in the history of the guild. And they just took liberties. They took li- um, they take they are taking unbelievable liberties. I, I just don't. And the other thing is Aldrich was the president of the Directors Guild for a couple of terms. Got us every director in the guild is indebted to Robert Aldrich. He got the greatest breakthrough contracts. He went locked up for two weeks with Lou Wasserman, slugged it out, and got the greatest advances we ever got in our creative rights and yeah. minimums, etc. And to to do this to the reputation of I'm all for the First Amendment, and you know I, I don't want to be a censor, and I don't, yeah. I don't want to say that you can't do something, but I think to do this to the reputation of a guy that didn't do anything but make really good movies and gave his whole life to the uh, American film yeah. uh, is, to me, without purpose. And it's shameful. It's just yeah. shameful. I can't see that. Just there, to service a story. In yeah, a to, to service the story in a childishly melodramatic way, in, uh, my, in my opinion. That's a shame. I wonder if his family is pushing back at all. Or... Well, I uh, his daughter called me uh as a matter of fact this yeah. morning oh really i guess it's one of the reasons i'm heated up about it yeah this. yeah they're in great pain over it you know that's oh, a shame and uh you know it's millions of people watch this they uh, uh it might be their only exposure to this guy it's yeah. right right you know, yeah it, it's going to be the memory of robert aldrich to millions of people who otherwise don't know about his career right and uh uh i just think it's 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 not illegal, I guess, and all that, but it's shameful. Are they and calling think, him? Robert? And I think somebody ought to say it's shameful. Yeah. So I guess I'm. You're the guy. I guess right now I'm the guy. And they're they're calling him by name in the in the movie. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. A, that's too bad. It really is. Sorry. What would? Well, you, well, you he 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 had the aliens. Oh yeah, and he said uh, I he said I like he was a tough old guy. Yeah. And he said uh, I like the script. He said you know it's uh it's, you got the you got the the monster and you got <laughs> you got a patrol movie yeah and he said you know and all that and he said uh yeah you know he said i i know how to do this and he said uh, but he said the, the movie will succeed or fail on the conception of the beast yeah. he said we got to come up with something really unique yeah and and he said he said i don't know just off the top of my head this may not be a good idea but you know, we, we maybe we could get like an orangutan and shave it, and, and we go, God Almighty, <laughs> that's one we hadn't thought of. Yeah, and uh, and you know, then uh, train the son of a bitch, and and we just because you never, you shouldn't see it very much. You know, he said something. It's got to be really weird and yeah. strange, and so we always thought uh, Ridley did a wonderful job. Uh, Bob agreed to do the movie, but then he had a movie come out. Well. He 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 couldn't shoot the movie in England where the movie where Fox wanted to make it. Yeah, because he couldn't leave the presidency of the directors. Guild. Right, right, right. So uh, it went on to Ridley, who David had seen The Duelist. Yeah. at the Cannes Film Festival and was very impressed with it. Beautifully shot. Uh, sound work was great. So Ridley liked the script. He came over and. Well, how'd you get from a shaved orangutan to the uh, Geiger stuff? Well, the uh, 
I, I guess I wasn't kind in my assessment of the original script, but the fellows that wrote the original script yeah. had uh, were familiar with uh, Giger's work. Giger, sorry, yeah. And uh, they showed us the pictures and then and the picture books of, of Giger's work, and we showed it to Ridley, and Ridley said, well, this is, our problems are solved. Yeah. And uh, so it went from there. And you were you were involved with all of them. You didn't direct the first one, but obviously we had a big part in the script. And then and Purdue, uh, I was involved in the first three. Yeah, uh, I'm listed as one of the producers on everything since, but Fox and I got as usual. Yeah, we got in a fight with the studio, and uh, uh, we negotiated a, a settlement. Yeah, uh, we're still listed as producers by their insistence. Uh, but we still maintain some ownership in the franchise. Uh, Jim Cameron directed the second one. Oh, that's right, one. too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I saw Jim just Monday, sadly, at Bill Paxton's memorial. He was, he, and Paxton was in here two weeks before he passed, talking to me. I ran into Bill at my doctor's office with some irony. I hadn't seen Bill in a couple of years. Bill and I were very good friends. Great guy. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Yeah, you're... you're, you're uh, moment with him was wonderful oh i was so happy it happened man well it it really got the essence of him too i mean oh good that's that's the way he was that's great good to hear yeah sweet guy man just a shame real sad um i i want to like i liked i really liked the movie geronimo and i wanted to tell you that (laughs) thank you (laughs) I, i don't know where it went or how it did but uh i i not well yeah no it didn't do well uh for a couple of reasons, but uh, it, uh, you know, I was I was very pleased with it. I thought the uh, it accomplished what we wanted to yeah. accomplish, and uh, I thought the story was a moving one. Yeah, and uh, I thought the camera work on it was well done, and I thought it looked beautiful. I thought Ry Cooter's score was oh, wonderful, yeah. and um, he's great. Do you, are you friends with him? Sure. How's he doing? He's doing great. He's oh, still good. living over there in Santa Monica Canyon, and uh, he tours. And he, yeah, you know, he's he's a real wizard. That guy. He, he may be the most talented person I've ever worked with. I mean, yeah. I, I always say that about Rye. He's, uh, you know, he's he he lives wonderfully inside his own head, and and he lives in this world of music, and he's wonderfully uh, adaptive of taking strains of great american music yeah and then making it uniquely his own yeah and um he's a joy yeah he's a joy yeah he's a real a real gift to music i you know and he's there's such a huge uh catalog to sort of like get to know him through but i i like that movie jason patrick i thought was great and jason's very good in it and milius is is there's something about that guy i don't know him but ever since i saw that documentary about the making of apocalypse now and they interviewed milius you know and he's like francis had convinced us that we were making the first film to win the nobel prize (laughs) like there was just such a swagger to his writing and like i i just uh, i like that thing oh he's a wonderful writer i always say that uh, my generation of screenwriter, I think that uh, John John's scripts read the best. If you wanted to read a script, yeah, uh, John was the absolutely the 
most powerful storyteller. Uh, he wrote beautiful scripts. Yeah. Is he? How's he doing? He's got health problems, uh-huh. and uh, they've prevented him from working in the last few years. Uh huh. And so now the the new one to get up to speed, the assignment. Uh, did, I, I hear you already got into a little little trouble with that, or no? <laughs> no, I think yes. The movie's been attacked. Uh, uh, roundly uh i mean it's also been defended I, yeah I, I hasten to point out but uh but there were people that felt that the movie uh uh treaded on ground that should not be uh examined the movie was roundly criticized before it even was not only not seen it was even made yeah but the uh, uh the subject matter was perceived to be verboten by several people and they didn't want the uh the first place it is not a movie about transgender it no, is it's a, it is it is uh, have you, i'm sorry have you seen it yeah 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 well it's a you know it is a movie that deals with genital alteration and to yeah but it's so uh, it's so clearly a a, a horror trope yeah and, and it's, it's a it's a, take. It's, a re, it's a revenge it's yeah. a comic book uh it's a take on you know something creepy there's a lot of elements in there yeah. that are very familiar to everyone but that turn that bizarre turn of that script where this vengeful doctor you know gets back at the man who killed her brother in this bizarro way is it's like it can't be seen as really connected to reality on some level no i mean and <laughs> if uh uh, and I don't I, even think you did a disservice to either character, I, the male or the female character. Well, I'm a great believer that, uh, you know, look, wh- wh- what is the fundamentally the most important thing that any director or any storyteller can have? And that is s- sympathy for the human condition. Yeah. Is is ultimately sounds grandiose, but yeah. it, it's, it is the fundamental. Now, you may approach it through many different ways you can yeah. approach it through comedy or serious drama or irony or comedy but i i leave both the, the movie pits a trained medical doctor who's also an intellectual who has a agenda uh uh and has a tragic past herself against the lowest form of criminal Darwinian survivor on the, to use one of Bill Paxton's favorite phrases, on the food chain. Yeah. They don't come any lower uh, than Frank Kitchen. And these two diametrically opposed types are thrown up against each other in a double revenge thing. And the movie finally, it seems to me, shows sympathy and elevates both characters. Yeah. Again, through a comic book format. Yeah. Graphic. It is a graphic novel that that uh, I co-wrote, but... Um, it started as a graphic novel? didn't start. It started... Uh, uh, Dennis Hamill wrote a script, wrote a story and script in 1977. Yeah. <laughs> and I read it then, and I, I always thought, God, this is a hell of a yeah. uh, an idea. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, and I didn't, I didn't do a goddamn thing for 15 years, I think it was. Then I optioned it. And I co-wrote a script which I didn't go right, just didn't, and I never really did anything with it. I just abandoned it, yeah, and gave the uh, story back to Dennis. And then another ten years went by, and I was stumbling around the basement, 
and I ran across his original, and I thought, you know, this was, I always loved this this thing. Um, and suddenly, and it's one of those, I don't think anybody ever believes you when you say it, but yeah. within about an hour, I had to, I figured out how I wanted to do it. Now, I knew certain things. I wasn't going to get a big budget. I wanted to do it neo-noir. I wanted to do it comic book. I wanted to do it as a kind of uh, somewhat larger version of one of the tales from the crypt yeah. that I had done in the past, where you take nasty people, uh, pit them against each other, and leave them in a chastened condition. Yeah. And uh, so I think the film accomplished that. I th- I've seen it with audiences. They seem It seems to play very well. Yeah. And, um, but I, again, uh, the movie is within a certain off-center format. It's not very realistic. It has nothing to do with transgender. And it, um, it's kind of a, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of would-be humor in it as well as, yeah, you know, the little, um, Especially the stuff between Sigourney and and Shalhoub. and Tony, yeah, yeah. And, and where, where's the graphic novel come into this? You wrote. You, you... Oh, uh, while I was in, uh, I, I turned the script in when I finished my version of the script. Yeah, I gave it to my agent, and he yeah. said, "Well, Jesus Christ, nobody's going to make this." Yeah, and uh, I said, "Well, great." And <laughs> good news. <laughs> yeah, and he said, uh, "Well, he said, well, look, uh, I was, I was on my way to Munich. They were doing a." retrospective of my movies at the Munich Festival. Uh-huh. He said, on your way back from Munich, stop in Paris. He said, I know a producer there. Maybe he'll go for it. He's kind of an odd guy. He'll go for it. He's chance. Yeah. He'll go for it. So I did. I stopped in Paris. And while I was in Paris, and and it turned out it, uh, he was quite right. Yeah. The French uh, producer, Saeed Ben Saeed, uh, uh, decided to back the movie as long as I promised that I would make it very quickly and yeah. very cheaply. Yeah. And that we got some kind of name casting in it. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, I saw, I had written another graphic novel uh, a year or so before, a gangster piece, which I had, which was published in France. And so I called up the, the publishers and said, I've got another one here that I think probably make a graphic novel. They agreed. And so simultaneously, the graphic novel started yeah. being put together. And you used some elements of that in the film. Oh, so yeah. Some yeah. comic panels. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and it was it's definitely a, a, a genre piece. It is indeed. Yeah. It was, it, was it another sort of, uh, was the concept to, to take that sort of B-movie vibe and elevate it again? Yes, I'm not even sure uh, Elevate is the, <laughs> right, it is, you know, as soon as somebody says this is low and this is lurid, yeah. I say absolutely, yeah. it is. Yeah. You know, that's that's part of the fun of it. I think Michelle's very good in it, and I think Sigourney's very good in it. Yeah. I'm very proud of the acting in it. Yeah, and the lead, Michelle, that's her name? Uh, Michelle her Rodriguez. Yeah, 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 she's great, yeah. As usual, everybody told me, oh, she's, you know, very difficult, you don't want to cast her. Uh-huh. And we met for lunch, and I said... Everybody tells me not to cast you because you're so difficult. Oh, fuck them. And, <laughs> and uh, so we talked about, I liked her right away. She's, she really is a very, she comes from a very hard background. Uh-huh. And she is a real 
off the streets, girl. And at the end of the lunch, she stood up and she said, well, she said, I don't know who the fuck you're going to cast in this thing, but uh, she said, I'll tell you one thing, guy or girl, you're never going to find anybody who can handle the guns better than me. And she walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. I, I, of course, cast her. Yeah. And, uh, and how do you like shooting like yeah, like quick and fast? Was it all digital? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't use film. Yeah, it was, it's it's digital. Well, how do I feel about it? Uh, I've always, I'm not one of those directors that likes lots of takes. Yeah. Uh, so that wasn't particularly a challenge. But at the same time, you know, I'd like to have had another five days or sure. something like that. Or yeah. Another, another slug of money. You yeah. always think you could, uh, you know, movies is... In the end, you know, they're never everything that you want them to be. Yeah. They have problems. Sure. And, um, uh, you think you could have done this a little better, that's a yeah. little better, you know. Um, but I I certainly think I wanted to do something very neo-noir. Uh-huh. I wanted it, again, within the graphic novel framework. Uh-huh. And I wanted to work with women. Yeah. I mean, you know, so many of my films... People always say, you know, he's a very masculine director and all that. <laughs> so, you know, it's that human instinct that whatever people say, you want to show them the opposite yeah, sure. is true. Yeah. And um, there it is. Yeah. You know? Listen, nobody makes movies that please everybody. You yeah. Know, they're, they're, yeah. They're, they're, that's just not. And, and, it's and, all... and you should never complain. Uh, I've had a very lucky career. Don't ever complain about this. The, the uh, There's a great quote that i probably going to get wrong from yeah dr johnson saying that that we we come uncalled into the arena to seek our fortune and hazard disgrace and that's exactly right <laughs> nobody asked you 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 yeah. you came into it yeah you play the goddamn cards you're dealt and you take your chances yeah and, and, and you can't see um, it coming necessarily no that's right and you you know you do what you can with what you got and uh you take your chances yeah, and you've weathered some storm i mean warriors got i mean the people are getting killed right yeah no we've you know that's right you yeah. know somehow well they always say the same thing yeah the 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 biggest trick is to stay in the game and uh i've been i can't believe you know i've actually been a director now for uh over 40 years uh-huh and i've been making a living in the town for 50 years showbiz uh, showbiz yeah. yeah and what do you got coming up i've just uh optioned a play that was off broadway another female lead uh -huh. i'm becoming a director of women uh, and i'm working on that script with the uh, uh author of the play what play it's called bethany uh-huh and it's uh, laura marks is the m-a-r-k-s not, uh -huh. not like carl uh -huh. and uh, is the author of the play and we're it's a, a psychological thriller i guess for lack of a better oh cool uh, excited uh, about it yes well great well, it's certainly a great uh, honor talking to you, Mr. Hill. Well, thank you. Again, and uh, thanks for the, uh, you know, they, at Bill's Memorial, uh, they they played some of the podcasts. Oh, really? Podcasts. Oh, yeah, I think they asked us. That was very yeah, nice of them and, to ask. And it was, it, you know, it it helped inform, and it was it was terribly moving, the, the, the service. Uh, 
for those of us that knew him. He was a very special person. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, and you know, and and I was uh, I was thrilled that uh, that I got to spend that time with him, and I, and honored that they used it at. Well, the I think it's uh, your show with him is going to be, you know, probably the most fitting testament, you know, to those that want to look back. Oh, you know, good. You, you. Well, I'm glad I, I I I provided that. Sure. Great talking to you. Thank you. That was exciting, right? A little history for you. What a, what an amazing life. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour. Uh, I've got a few more dates coming up. Madison, Wisconsin this week. Milwaukee, uh, Minneapolis this Saturday for the special. Then a little later and a few weeks after that, I got Philadelphia and uh, Washington, D.C. If those sound good to you or you're in the area, go to wtfpod.com slash tour for that. Go to WTFPod.com to pre-order the new book, Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF Podcast. I can play some dirty guitar. I brought the the the, the magic instrument out here, and I'm going to plug it into an old thing. Boomer lives. <laughs>